Hello, and welcome to Data Kerfuffle. Uh, so Hello. I'm your host, Anna McDermott. I'm here doing an extremely derivative podcast as a fan of a podcast that talks about another podcast, and we're a very short distance from just conjuring Kevin Bacon at this point. So I want to welcome Wonks, Technocrats, and Raptor Princesses of Knowledge Fight, the greatest podcast in the universe, with all of the... Uh, this vague unease and discontent caused by the steadily increasing constraints on daily living for those of us living under the tyranny of state governments uh, determined to do anything at all to protect us from COVID-19. If it can be done, I thought it might be nice to have a bit of a chat with a medical professional who might be able to answer some helpful questions. So my guest today is Juan Kristen from Colorado. Say hello. Hello. Uh, Thanks can for you having me. Yeah, uh, thank you for agreeing to come on. Can you tell us a little bit about your qualifications? Uh, so I've been in uh, the medical field for 11 years, so basically all of my adult life. I did five years as a CNA, a uh, nurse aide, um, one year in um, on a, a cardiac floor uh, at an area hospital, uh, two years as a home health uh, aide for children with developmental disabilities. Um, and then however much the rest of my time was, I was in uh, a long-term care facility, um, a nursing home. And then after I became a registered nurse, I did um, I stayed one year in the nursing home that I was already working in. And then I moved into uh, community health family practice. Uh, so that is uh, pretty exclusively for the underserved, underinsured, um, vulnerable populations. And I was uh, a clinic nurse for three years there. And now I have gotten back into pediatric home care. And so I currently have been at this job for almost a year now. Um, and I work for an infant with a feeding tube. Oh, boy. Oh, and I'm also, uh, I am a nurse practitioner student. So I am working to become a, uh, a family nurse uh, practitioner. So like sort of one tiny step below an MD. Yeah, the uh, nurse practitioners in family health and community health make all the difference in like the rural parts of eastern Washington where I grew up. Uh, mm -hmm. We wouldn't have help at all if it weren't for the nurse practitioners out there. It's such an important job. It is, and I definitely definitely saw that a ton in uh, community health as well. Yeah, that makes great sense. Well, thank you very much both for um, agreeing to take some time to talk and for just doing this job because that's that's amazing and it's great that people uh, care enough to jump into those waters. It's tough. Yeah, thank you. Um, we're recording this on March 15th, 2020. So I'm Anna and this is 2020. <laughs> <laughs> the news at the moment looks about like this. So uh, Hubei province in China is gradually beginning to open up and send kids back to school after about a seven week hard quarantine in which people were systematically funneled through these two separate paths of healthcare management and redundant quarantining where they would test for the illness and isolate the ill and then provide hospital care to the seriously ill and like stadium style nursing assistance to the mildly ill while everybody else was stuck in their buildings doing nothing in particular in this city of more than 11 million people and the whole province around it. And then, uh, but this total exhausting lockdown that they've managed to uh, implement in China has allowed them to decrease the number of new daily infections 
to almost zero. Like I think it was eight on Friday. Wow. And they're inching forward out of that crouch posture into an effort to resume economic activity without spurring a new outbreak. Then South Korea is on the downslope for new infection. Italy is having a hell of a time. Uh, Spain's getting pretty aggressive. Uh, they're about a week behind Italy, and we're like a week behind that, more or less. And then the UK has decided they're going to try a very restrained approach and rely on Brits to not touch each other, which I think is bold. Mm -hmm. um, Iran is lying about their casualty rate, which doesn't look very good. And Mexico is considering closing its northern border to the U.S. for its own security. So uh, here in the States, there's a long list of miscellaneous precautions that have been implemented on a state by state or even city by city basis, uh, depending on circumstances, given that the federal action so far has been to suggest older Americans might not want to bunch together and that everyone in European airports should panic immediately. Um, where I live in Washington state, We've had a very serious outbreak beginning in a retirement home in Kirkland, which is near Seattle and King County. The schools are closed statewide. Uh, the big corporations have sent everyone who can work from home, including just about all of the 60,000 people who work at Microsoft's Redmond campus uh, doing telework. Emerald City Comic Con's been canceled or postponed and Washington has banned events of over 250 people. And my D&D group has to play on the internet like a bunch of kids. Uh, the virus has been detected all over the state. We have about 650 cases and 40 deaths in Washington. And the testing is slow but gradually improving. And the governor estimates we have a couple thousand undetected cases running around and at least that and more to come. So there are a bit over 3,000 cases in the U.S. with large pockets in California, New York, and Massachusetts. Many states have similar restrictions like school closures and event cancellations. And just now, like less than an hour ago, the CDC released updated recommendations to limit gatherings to less than 50 people nationwide for the next eight weeks. Uh, so that was hot off the presses from my phone. Uh, South by Southwest in Austin has been canceled. Coachella has been moved to October. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson are quarantined in Australia. The president has shaken hands with everybody. Uh, the conservative media would like you to think this is all fear-mongering excess of zeal and that the liberal media is going bananas to make you think everyone is going to die. It's all no worse than the flu. And then the liberal media is flipping conservative media off with both hands and saying, don't panic, but you guys, this guy's is like, it's, that's actually pretty serious, though. And then this cycle goes on and on and on. And I super duper hate both sizing. So I wanted to get real practical information and maybe dunk on some bullshit and then share the results with you, our beloved friends. So, Kristen, I have to start with the most important question. Is it over for humanity? Yes, there will only be lone survivors. <laughs> that's good to know. <laughs> you got to trust my guess. All right. Uh, is it excessive to this canceling events that, that people are doing, like the, the Comic-Cons and stuff? Mm -hmm. It's absolutely not excessive. Uh, the incubation period for COVID-19 is thought to be uh, anywhere from 2 to 14 days. Um, and what that means is that after you come into contact with that virus, it can be anywhere from 2 days to 14 days before you start showing symptoms, the, the cough, the fever, the shortness of breath that are the hallmarks of COVID-19. And in that time, the virus lives and replicates inside your body. Um, now, it's thought that the spread of the virus isn't very likely until you actually show symptoms, but because we know so little about this virus, we can't say that you definitively only can pass it on as you're symptomatic. 
Um, so as an example as to why it's important to do things like cancel events that include large gatherings. Um, so if an individual who is infected with COVID-19 um, but doesn't know it yet, or uh, if that individual starts ignoring the mild symptoms like a, a persistent dry cough or a low-grade fever, um, because it's thought that only a, a small percentage of the population will experience symptoms severe enough to require hospitalization. So if that person goes around um, and say goes to a baseball game or to a movie theater or to you know a concert, um, the the people who the number of people who are going to be exposed to that individual through one means or another um, is going to be very high. Um, so it's very it's the canceling of large gatherings is a very important mitigation tool um, that we are using to limit the spread of COVID-19 as much as possible. Do you have any thoughts about this new CDC restriction, bringing it like nationwide recommending all the way down to below 50? I really think that it's a good idea. Um, I know there are going to be plenty of people who are going to, you know, scoff at that. There have been um, there have been people that have posted on Instagram that they are they are defiantly going to like brunches today and stuff like that and and you know giving the middle finger to the idea of social distancing or not having gatherings. Um, so I I think that that being a broad recommendation by the CDC is a good move because hopefully enough people will take that to heart and take it very seriously that we can we can start uh, the downslope of the new cases that we see every day. Uh, you mentioned social distancing. That's a, that's a really hot topic right now. Mm -hmm. Everybody's saying it on all the news programs. Can you tell us like what exactly that actually means? So social distancing is, uh, in, in the literature that I read, it's described as uh, eliminating large gatherings like we already have um, and closing school districts. So I know that uh, in my area, in my city in Colorado, all of the school districts are closed at least until the end of March, and then they'll reevaluate. Um, so that also, um, that uh basically means that unless you absolutely have to go out into public, stay home. Um, so what it boils down to is the simple fact that if fewer people have uh, physical interactions, the disease, the disease will have a harder time finding new hosts. So it really boils down to do not be around other people if you don't absolutely have to. I associate the idea also with something that I picked up just as a as a home health care worker, which I did for a number of years, um, where we follow this rule that you stay about six feet away if either you or the client has any chance of a communicable illness, where you, you just try to maintain a literal physical distance between yourself and other people under the circumstances where one or the other of you might um, might be sick too. Does that fall under the same sort of umbrella? Um, I think broadly it would, yes. But that's that's a recommendation that I've seen very frequently uh, from the CDC and the, the WHO um, and other outlets that are reporting on this. And I know that they implemented uh, in Italy uh, where they started having mass outside and all of the, the parishioners were standing three, I think they said at least three feet away from the person next to them. So it so social distancing can include both physical distance between you and the next person and also 
just not going out into public if you don't absolutely have to. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I went to the grocery store at five o'clock in the morning today just to make some Probably space. a good idea. Yeah, it's very exciting out there, you know, finding what what has um, what has struck people as the thing that they need to have in their power. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to I don't want to deride people for hoarding toilet paper. I understand people need a bit of control in their lives and and saving up something that, you know, you're going to need is not hurting anybody. It's just people want to have control. But it's it's funny to me that in addition to the toilet paper and a couple of other odds and ends, that the thing that was gone was pasta, like mm-hmm. rice and beans. Nobody cared. But pasta, pasta was gone. Yep. <laughs> So um, the thing that I've been fielding a lot from people that I know is how can we tell the difference between a cold and the coronavirus? So first and foremost, if you feel sick at all, stay home. I'm going to say this a bunch while I'm talking about this, but it is paramount. Um so the, the trio of symptoms that are indicative of the coronavirus are fever, a dry cough, meaning you're not coughing up phlegm, you're not coughing up, you know, the gunk, it's just the, the dry hacking cough, and the shortness of breath. The shortness of breath is the thing that sets this apart from the quote-unquote common cold. Um, a common cold will also include symptoms like fe- uh, fever, runny nose, uh, stuffy nose, um, cough, whether productive or non-productive, and a headache. Um, so the headache, stuffy nose, um, and uh, productive cough are not signs of COVID-19. But I still see in many places uh, that the recommendation is even if you if the, your symptoms you think are that of a common cold, stay home. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I know a, a, a bunch of folks who they have the sniffles and so they're staying um, staying home. Mm-hmm. And uh, my brother-in-law is a teacher. And after he was tested for COVID-19, they said, um, all right, you don't have it. Stay home anyway. You know, that's mm-hmm. fine. You're, you're still sick. So we don't need yeah. anybody gumming up the works right now. Yes. Um, uh, what should you, you've already said that if you feel sick, stay home. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh like, what's the point at which you should seek medical help? If you if you start to experience any of the symptoms indicative of coronavirus after staying home, uh, call. There are lots of uh, nurse triage lines um, and, and medical advice lines that are available, um, so that you don't have to go out and go to the hospital unless it's absolutely necessary. So the first thing to do is call call your physician, um, call a local nurse line. Uh, many of the uh, many major hospital systems have a dedicated nurse line anyway. Um, but if you have severe symptoms that require emergency attention, um, and that would be a high fever that does not come down um, after using Tylenol, um, shortness of breath um, that you know you feel is is getting worse. Um, if you ever have trouble breathing, of course, go to the ER. But the thing about going to the ER right now is that they are understandably absolutely swamped. So what you need to do before going into the ER is call ahead, describe your symptoms, 
let them know if you've had exposure that you know of and give them any recent travel history. Um, and if you're able to stay home, monitor your symptoms, uh, take your temperature regularly, keep a timeline of what your symptoms are doing. Um, try to stay away from other members of your, of your family if possible. Um, and uh, there's, there's no consensus as of right now as to what whether a lower fever or a higher fever is indicative of COVID-19. Um, so any fever at this point is a uh, suspect. Something that I thought that was really neat about the way that China handled this, I'm not saying like, yay, China, but this is a cool thing, is that uh, after SARS, they developed this system of the fever clinic where people with fevers are routed to like the side of the hospital. They go in a different door, they get processed through a different channel and evaluated separately from everybody else. I would love if we were able to gradually implement something kind of like that to help keep the COVID track separate from the everybody else track just on the way into the hospital so that to help keep people from getting sick in the waiting room. Just thought that was a, a cool structure that I wish yeah. we could emulate. I, I hadn't heard of that, but that is a that is a really cool uh, cool thing that they did. Hmm. And uh, another thing, once they would uh, once they screen you, like you go through, you get screened. They check you. Know, do you have a fever? If you do indeed have a fever, then you get um, tested for like f they do a simple test for flu and and a couple of other common conditions that might be contributing to your feeling ill. And if you get one of those, they check you out and say, all right, you're sick, but go home. But if you do not clear on those testing grounds, then you get a COVID test so that uh, a narrowed list of people are taking the COVID test. And if you po test positive for COVID, that you sit in the waiting room and you wait for a few hours while they check. And then if you're positive, you go to like a stadium sized uh, gathering center where there are nurses. Like if you aren't seriously ill, if you're seriously ill, you're hospitalized. But if you're not seriously ill, you get sent to um, like a giant gymnasium with bunk beds and nurses and they bring you water and food and, and keep track of you. And they get up for dance class a couple times a day to make sure everybody's breathing and moving around a lot of elderly folk, but they just kept them uh, essentially separate from other sick people and their families. Oh, that's um, really cool. I in like the months, so I, because I, I had been wondering, how did they go from tens of thousands of new cases to eight? And it was this really hard line. They test you everywhere you go, in the building, out of the building, on the transport, off the transport. You are constantly tested for a fever, and if you get a fever, you go to the fever clinic, and then you get tested and screened and maneuvered through this parallel course of a healthcare system. And that's what uh, that's what it took to turn it around in China. It didn't just peter out on its own. I was wondering so. that because it did take a really sharp decline from thousands and thousands to eight. That's, that's crazy. I wish they reported on that more because that sounds like a really good system if you're able to, to implement it effectively. Yeah. The, um, we wouldn't be able to be as draconian about how much testing we do for the fever, but we mm -hmm. could do a lot of testing for fever and it's easier than trying to test everybody for COVID, you know, fever, fever, yeah, fever, definitely. fever, yep. So yeah, I just thought that was neat. Um, if we are going into self-quarantine at home because we think we've been exposed, what uh, what should like what should we do at home? So it's advised to to begin when you start feeling ill or you believe or know that you've come into contact with somebody who is infected. 
Um, because the incubation period is, like I said, uh, about 14 days, uh, this is the amount of recommended time uh, for you to self-quarantine because you can develop symptoms at any point during those 14 days. Um, you'll still be safe to walk your dog. You'll still be okay to sign for packages. You'll, you can still receive food deliveries. Um, for the most part, self-quarantine will look like Netflix sleep and probably a lot of boredom, but it is very important to take this step uh, if you've been exposed because you can literally save lives this way. And your family and roommate going about their own business or should they go into quarantine with you because you've been exposed or like, how are it you depends. supposed to handle that? So it depends on how how close you have been to to said family members physically. Um, so it's important to stay away from them as much as possible, as much as you can. Keep in in one room. Um, if you have access to masks, wear them around the house as the sick person. If if you can. Um, because wearing a mask in the case of the general public, as opposed to for a healthcare worker, is for sick individuals to wear to help protect the healthy individuals from becoming infected. Um, the, the perception is broadly that it's the other way around, um, but it's not. So as much as you can, stay in one room, wipe down, uh, frequently touch surfaces as much as possible, um, and, and, you know, keep to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, when we're trying to get better from a mild case of COVID at home, what is, what's, the, what's the chicken soup advice for that? Is it the same as treating a cold or the flu? It is, because there's, there's no treatment, no cure right now. So as long as your symptoms aren't severe enough to warrant hospitalization, supportive measures uh, should be taken, which means lots of drinking, clear fluids, water, ginger ale, Sprite. Uh, Gatorade G2, um, taking over-the-counter fever-reducing medication. Um, I've seen today that research is coming out that suggests that um, medicines that are, they're called NSAIDs, so like ibuprofen, Motrin, Aleve, aspirin, uh, may exacerbate the virus. So they recommend Tylenol, um, which I know is getting harder and harder to find, um, but really just resting, pushing fluids, um, and, and sleeping. It's is, really important. It, is aspirin an NSAID also? It is. Okay. So all, all about the acetaminophen. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's, that's the biggest one to go to right now. Yeah. Plus it's easier on your stomach if your stomach is upset anyway. So. Yes, definitely. Um, a lot of... Uh, like a fun video I shared the other day and found in the group and um, also a lot of news programs and things are talking about this, uh, this flatten the curve concept as a goal for public health. Uh, can you explain it uh, for us? So a good explanation um, is that the idea is to increase social distancing in order to slow the spread of the virus so that you don't get a huge spike in the number of people getting sick all at once. If that were to happen, there wouldn't be enough hospital beds or mechanical ventilators for everyone who needs them, and the U.S. hospital system would be overwhelmed. So um, if you're looking at the numbers of the new cases on a graph, you've got sort of a, a small ramping up at the beginning and then 
it spikes into this almost completely vertical line. So what flattening the curve means is that through um, measures like social distancing and uh, self-quarantine, we want to bring that vertical line, uh, if not going downwards, at least not as sharp up, if that makes sense. Um, and I shared a link with you um, that has a, um, it's a simulation that the Washington Post put out that, that gives different scenarios um, that flatten the curve in different ways. And it's, it's a really good visual representation of flattening the curve. But that's basically what it is, is using uh, mitigating tools to uh, take that line from a vertical line to, you know, uh, 45 degrees or something like that. So it's not about fewer people getting infected so much as it taking longer for them to become infected and, and just spreading out the period of time that we're dealing with the whole thing? Uh, yes. I mean, obviously, of course, the, the goal is for fewer people to become infected, but they're already uh, estimating that like 70% of the total population is going to get it eventually. And as we spread out these cases, as we, you know, as we encounter new cases, if we spread them out, uh, we can treat them more effectively in the hospital setting. Um, and it also gives us, it gives scientists more time uh, to develop, you know, treatments, cures, vaccines, you know, stuff like that. So um, the mortality rate for, for this disease, it's kind of all over the place uh, from maybe like 1% in some places up to 3.6%, depending where you live. Like mm -hmm. Italy runs out of hospital space and they're so overwhelmed that they have to triage who gets ventilators and who gets ICU beds. So the, mm -hmm. the rate is much higher there. And then we're just getting started in the U.S., so our rate looks really, really low at the moment. But the entire range of mortality rates is, is way higher than the season, seasonal flu, especially in the older people. So for young people, it could be like a tenth of a percent. And then you get over the age of 80, and it can be as much as 30 percent. Mm -hmm. And the virus gives elderly people in particularly a really bad pneumonia, right? Um, yes. It's the, the core of what's what's killing people is the pneumonia? Yes. Okay. I noticed that this isn't everyone or even most people being dead. So why shouldn't we just shrug and be like, oh, it's fine. Most of us will live. <laughs> It's, it's important not to take that it, that approach to it because first and foremost, people are going to die and they are still human beings. So we should still care. Um, and and it, but there are so many people that may have underlying health conditions that they don't even, you know, necessarily know about yet. Um, it's, having the attitude that I'm probably going to get it, but I'll be fine is uh, frankly just a very selfish attitude to have because you might be fine, but you know, your neighbor might not be, you may get a cold. It may kill your mother. Yeah. Our governor Jay Inslee here in Washington um, was doing a press conference about his 250 limit on gatherings and, and, and a reporter asked him, uh, is there going to be a penalty 
for people who break this rule and have meetings over 250 people. And he said uh, the penalty is that you could be killing your grandpa. Mm-hmm. He straight up said it. And it's like, yeah, tell him. Yeah, it always exactly. strikes me. Yeah, it strikes me as a little bit appalling because it's it's not like it's a rare disease that only a few people scattered around the country have and a tiny fraction of those may die of it. It's a fast spreading aggressive illness. So if you think about 2% mortality in thyroid cancer, that's kind of chump change as far as cancer goes, right? That's not, Mm -hmm. that's pretty good. But 2% in a community spread respiratory illness that hundreds of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are going to get, that's a lot. That's a lot of people. And do you have, uh, do you happen to have the uh, flu mortality number in front of you? I do not. Um, last I checked, and I've, I've seen this in a number of places, it was 0.02%, which is to say um, lots, lots less. Yes, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, the... Uh, or 0.2%, maybe two tenths of a percent, something like that. It's uh, mm-hmm. between 10 and 30 times lower than the mortality rate that is estimated associated with COVID. And while it's the same people who are getting sick for the most part, um, and it is increasingly fatal to people who are already elderly and in poor health, that's still not okay. Exactly. And it's also it's also uh, really dangerous to start comparing it to the flu for a number of reasons. But one of the biggest reasons is is that we do not know enough about coronavirus to to be making comparisons like that. We don't have treatments available. We don't know how this virus behaves. We don't know how it replicates. We don't know, know what the patterns are going to look like in the end, uh, as far as total mortality and who is susceptible and where where you're more likely to get it and, and what underlying conditions um, make you more likely to, you know, to require um, ICU care or, you know, how many are going to die because of this. So it's very, uh, it's very short-sighted and it's very dangerous to pass this off as, oh, this is just like the flu you know, the flu's numbers are higher because we simply have not known about this virus and the way it behaves for long enough to make that kind of comparison. And um, we also don't know anything about if there are going to be long-term effects that carry on. Like, look at Mm -hmm. Zika and how we didn't really know much about it, but then find that it's connected to the uh, encephalitis something microcephaly yeah microcephaly there we go thank you um so uh you touched a little bit on why it's important that it is a brand new virus um can you explain why vaccines uh take a while to happen no matter how many times you say hurry up so vaccines are derived from the proteins within the infectious agent. So within the virus, there are proteins um, that have to be separated from the virus. Um, and they have to figure out, as they're making these vaccines, which proteins will elicit the 
desired immune response in order to build up immunity in the host organism. So that would be us, the vaccine recipients. Um, the development of vaccines is a multi-step process and under normal um, non-emergent circumstances, this process can take anywhere from two to five years. Um, so to start, uh, even though we've isolated the genome sequence of, the, of this new or novel coronavirus, it will still take time uh, for scientists to grow enough uh, of that virus um, so that they can work with it. It's like culturing bacteria um, and you just have to give it time to replicate and replicate and replicate into enough uh, substance that you can actually work with. Uh, on top of that, since this is such an infectious and, and quick spreading disease, it has to be done under very stringent, uh, very careful conditions. Um, the process then has to go on through further testing stages to find an animal model for testing, then actually conducting the animal testing. Then it has to go through regulatory approval and then it has to go through mass production. And they have to, they have to prove that it is an effective uh, vaccine in order for it to be approved and to get into mass production. So please be assured that scientists are doing absolutely everything they can as fast as they can to make all of this happen. But we as citizens really need to understand this is a huge, huge task, especially for an as until now unknown pathogen. Yeah, I saw a news article today that said that a phase one human trial is starting on a coronavirus vaccine in Seattle today or tomorrow, um, which is crazy. But um, the article gives you three or four paragraphs before it says, and phase one trial followed by phase two trial means 12 to 18 months before there's any even remote possibility of getting approval from the FDA. Yeah. Things like that, because you've got your phase one trial where they just give a few people the thing to see if it is harmful to humans. And then the phase two where they see if it works at all. Yep. And um, can uh, can you tell us what a coronavirus is? So coronaviruses are a large group of viruses that more often than not cause only mild to moderate respiratory illness. Um, classifying a virus um, is uh, there's ongoing debate about how to classify different viruses because it, it, to boil it all down, viruses are alive, but not. And so classifying them into different families is difficult. Um, so it, it's typically done through characteristics like the morphology of the virus, the nucleic acid types that are included in the virus, uh, the ho host organisms that the virus affects, and the type of disease that they cause. So COVID-19 has similar characteristics to six other types of known coronaviruses. Four of those coronaviruses are known to cause mild symptoms like the quote-unquote common cold, um, and then there are SARS and MERS, which of course are, are quite a bit more deadly um, upper respiratory infections. Uh, so it, and the classifying of uh, viruses is done uh, similarly to the way that animals are, uh, are classified in taxonomy. So does um, two things being coronaviruses mean that they're related to each other? In some way, yes. Um, I couldn't, with, without going very deep into um, 
into medical journals that I don't have the education to understand because virus replication and virus classification is very, very uh, complicated. Um, so they are similar in one of those ways that I addressed. Um, mm -hmm. So in this case, these are all respiratory viruses. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, you could call them like cousin viruses or something like that. Right. That's, um, I was really curious about that because I wasn't sure if this is like, um, is it a case of them being similar to one another or do they have to actually be connected to one another by some, like this one has mutated from that one and that's how they are related or if it's a lot more vague and complicated than that. And it sounds like vague and complicated is the win. Uh, it is. And um, a mutated version of any one of these uh, coronaviruses is just a different kind of that coronavirus. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Um, oh. But it, yeah, it doesn't mutate into, like, uh, SARS didn't mutate into COVID-19. That's it would very cool. Be, yeah, it would just be a new version of SARS. Just like every year they have to make a new, or they have to produce the flu virus uh, and aim it toward the strain of the flu that's most likely to be prevalent in that flu season. Um, it's It's just you know, influenza A, influenza B, you know, th that is how uh, mutations get classified rather than turning into, you know, SARS, turning into MERS, turning into COVID-19. Oh, see, now that's, that's great. So it's going to be the COVID-19 is the same virus as was hanging out in bats with mutations and things. And now it's yeah. co called COVID-19 because we noticed it. Yes. But it's not like, oh, that makes so much sense. But it also does such a huge amount of lifting on chucking out everything that Alex has to say on this subject. Yep. <laughs> Where it's all the same thing and his, uh, his, oh, they studied a coronavirus. So that's basically the same thing now. No, it's not, not even close to the All same right. thing. Like um, the, the uh, COVID-19, um, they, they have found in, um, in their studies of it that it's 10 to 20 times more likely uh, to bind to uh, these receptors called ACE2 receptors on human cells uh, than from the SARS virus from 2002. So that makes uh, transmission so much easier and and you know harder to stop yeah that makes sense only because i have recently enough taken college level biology to be like aha <laughs> yep but yep. still um it does make sense um all right uh what uh, can you tell us just getting back into the more nuts and boltsy stuff um the difference between airborne and droplet transmission so droplet transmission refers to the pathogens that are passed from person to person via droplets. So that would be, you know, your kid coughing or sneezing in your face, talking where, like I assume Alex does a lot of time, he spits a lot because he yells all the time. <laughs> um, so in that... I totally do too. It's still all over people <laughs> fair, when I'm talking. Fair. Me too, when I get really excited. Um, so, so in, in cases like that, in uh, diseases that are transmitted by droplets, 
the germs hang out in the fluids themselves. Um, airborne transmission is when the pathogens stay in the air. So that that's like floating germs, if you want to think about it that way. So tuberculosis and chickenpox are examples of airborne illnesses where the, the infectious agents just hang out in the air. So just being in the same room as somebody uh, can transmit the disease to you rather than for droplets. Um, you know, it's it, like I said, if your kid coughs or sneezes in your face and it, it you breathe it in or, you know, I've, my children have coughed into my mouth while they're talking to me. Um, and the other way that uh, droplet transmission can be passed from person to person is say if I sneeze into my hand, which you absolutely shouldn't do, you should be sneezing into your elbow. Um, and then I put my hand on the counter and the droplets then sit on that counter. Um, so for COVID-19, what they're finding is that uh, under what could be called ideal conditions, ideal if you are the virus, um, the virus can live on surfaces for up to 72 hours. Um, so, oh, wow. so that's why sanitizing, wiping down, cleaning, um, places that are frequently touched or you know places where family members frequently hang out if you're at home. Um, that's why that's very important because it, it has been shown to live for up to three days. Um, it's also uh, not susceptible to the cold. It can be exposed to temperatures they've found uh, up to, well, down to negative 20 degrees Celsius and it doesn't affect it. Um, and uh, heat doesn't seem to affect it until it gets to like normal cooking temperatures. So 300, 400 degrees. So it's a very stable virus, um, wow. which is not, not, in our favor. That's not great. No. Yeah. Nope. Is the is the seasonal flu virus vulnerable to heat? Do you know? I I would have to look that up. I really don't know. I, I shouldn't. I that's the sort of thing that like the PhDs that come on the nightly talk shows refuse to answer to. I shouldn't have. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, that's, <laughs> They're like, that's no, really we don't know, and we can't prove anything, and we're not saying that we can prove anything. So shush. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, my next question is, help, help. The store's out of Clorox wipes. How does a poor, helpless millennial raised by wolves and incapable of self-reliance clean and disinfect surfaces without Clorox wipes? So first of all, um, there's a difference between cleaning and disinfecting. So cleaning is the process of physically removing dirt, germs, etc., cetera, uh, from surfaces. So this does not kill the, the germs, but it reduces the ability for them to spread. Uh, disinfecting a surface means that the germs and other path pathogens on a surface may not be physically removed, um, but they will be killed. Um, so in this case, uh, in our current dystopian apocalyptic hellscape, where people believe that cases of toilet paper will sell save them from this pandemic, um, and coming across true disinfectants like alcohol and bleach is difficult, we need alternatives, right? So in many cases, household cleaners like soaps and detergents will work to get clean surfaces. Uh, they will work to clean surfaces that are dirty. Um, so that can be um, just a soap on a sponge, um, paper towels if you can find them, physically removing the germs, uh, such as with a paper towel or um, a soap, dish detergent, whatever, is better than just leaving it there. 
Um, and then whenever possible, wash your laundry on the warmest setting possible to kill as many pathogens as possible. Um, be sure to wear disposable gloves as you're cleaning if you have access to them. Um, and then I, I wanted to make sure that I added this um, because I was an adult before I learned this, but uh, be sure to never, ever, ever use ammonia and bleach together to clean anything because they, they will create toxic fumes and those have the potential to be deadly. <laughs> uh, um, I have an adult sister uh, who used um, the, the uh, she used bleach to clean up around a litter box that mm -hmm. had a oh, severe God. sort of homegrown <laughs> ammonia situation going on. Uh, yeah. And we were all just like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? You have children. And oh she seemed to be of the opinion that, well, it's uh, this combination works better. And oh. like, you just don't oh. want to admit that you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not safe. Not safe at all. You will burn your lungs. You were in the Navy. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, good heaven. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, uh, for some, maybe some more fun, uh, uh, cartoonish supervillain and desperately unfortunate alcoholic in dire need of an intervention, Alex oh, God, Jones yeah. talks yeah. about a talks a lot about this uh, being any number of different stupid made-up things uh, as Dan mm -hmm. explains on a regular basis and Dan is really good at picking all of that dumb shit apart and I love listening to him do it so I, I don't want to retread that same ground so much but uh, there are um, a couple of things we might be able to to pick at um, can you uh, can you explain what CRISPR is so CRISPR is a DNA editing technology that has the potential to quote unquote fix genetic defects. Um, it could treat and prevent diseases and it can, uh, it has the potential to possibly improve crops. All of this presents huge ethical dilemmas, um, the potential for huge ethical dilemmas, um, that there are entire panels and, uh, you know, bodies for, uh, you know, de deliberating through, um, the, you know, there are biological ethicists that specifically work to address the, the potential ethical ramifications of this. So it's not like, as I'm sure Alex has said, um, it's not like they are just going whole hog into this and, you know, uh, genetically editing babies or whatever his narrative is. Um, I am sure that the word eugenics is used frequently in his referring to CRISPR. Um, and honestly, um, my 10 year old probably knows more about CRISPR than Alex. Well, I find the technology fascinating and learning about it was a lot of fun but it is kind of complicated how it looks for patterns in, in the code and, and cuts apart the bits and stitches them back together. It's all very interesting. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not like a pair of scissors that you can just willy-nilly attack any genome and glue it back together. Um, there's a fair amount of, uh, of work involved. Uh, yeah. These days you can just order custom-printed mechanically or not mechanically but chemically manufactured dna and rna sequences in the mail and it's easy um mm -hmm. to like to 
if humanity were more evil at all, we have a lot more bioweapons because they're not yeah. hard. Uh, so, uh, on on which subject, um, the uh, I wanted to read you a, a smidgen of Wikipedia real quick. I'm sorry for being okay. lame and dumb, but that's that's what I've got. <laughs> so, uh, in Britain, the 1950s saw the weaponization of plague, brucellosis, tularemia, and later equine encephalomyelitis and vaccinia viruses uh, but the program was unilaterally canceled in 1956 the united states army biological warfare laboratories weaponized anthrax tularemia brucellosis q fever and others in 1969 the uk and the warsaw pact separately introduced proposals to the un to ban biological weapons the u.s president richard nixon terminated production of biological weapons allowing only scientific research for defensive measures. The Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention was signed by the UK, US, USSR, and other nations as a ban on the, quote, development, production, and stockpiling of microbes or other poisonous products, except in amounts necessary for protective and peaceful research in 1972. However, the Soviet Union continued research and production of massive offensive biological weapons programs called the Biopreparat, despite having signed the convention. As of September 2018, 182 countries have ratified the treaty, and none are proven, though nine are still suspected, to possess offensive biological weapons programs. So uh, the reason I read that is that given that we have pre-existing weaponized versions of super serious, extremely bad news, deadly fungi, bacteria, and viruses, what might motivate a country to develop a biological weapon like this one. <laughs> it seems a whole lot more cumbersome to use this one for a biological weapon than any of those. We've got all these others and they're all so bad. There's and, literal plague. Yeah, yeah. And ricin is super easy to make. I, I knew of a nursing home resident one time who made it in her uh, room. So it's not difficult. <laughs> So this, yeah, this, the, is, this is just cold really cold complicating things. Yeah. So I I have a couple of theories about what might what might do it. So okay. So maybe, maybe uh you make it so that there are so many asymptomatic people and that means that it spreads longer and has this longer lead time. Or or maybe you're doing it to overwhelm the healthcare system and deal economic damage rather than depopulate people. So you want to have uh an illness that is just enough of a problem to cause these spikes in people who are unprepared, although that would have really diminishing returns. I don't know. Uh, you're going after specific kinds of economies. Uh, and maybe it's uh, maybe it's so it's so ineffective that nobody will believe it's actually a bioweapon, <laughs> which will allow you plausible deniability. And then the last one is the one that I've actually seen tragically, and that's the China's aging population is more numerous than their young population because of the one-child policy, and mm -hmm. to the tune of any one adult is responsible for the well-being of like six elders uh, or more, and parents and grandparents. So a disease that's slightly more effective against the elderly could be a deliberate cull of the population deemed burdensome by the Communist Party, which is gross. Yeah, but that very is. Gross memed all over the place like right. i don't know if eight thousand years of the history of chinese culture could possibly impact the way that globalists behave but that just doesn't no. seem right 
No, it doesn't. And it seems like a very, like, unsure way to go about it. Like, I feel yeah. like there would be and, more, more effective ways. And, and it's really expensive, too. It does seem like whoever uh, has wielded this bioweapon uh, um, is happy enough to destroy economies and waste a lot of time, effort, and things. It's, all, oh, it's always these convoluted, um, super elaborate, post hoc justification for why they want to continue to believe that it's all a plot. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. movie super villain level, like complexity of stuff where like, yeah, the movie no government functions that well, no government yeah. functions that, that coherently. <laughs> no secret functions that well. No, and imagine, God, I don't no. even know what brucellosis is, but I bet it's a little more dangerous than this. Yeah, yeah, uh, it sounds like I've never heard of it either. Brucellosis. <laughs> That's going to be related to a brucella bacteria, I bet. But uh, who knows? Like so, uh, so we, it's definitely not a bioweapon. It's a slightly mutated bad virus. It's the exact kind of thing <laughs> for which serious people have been on high alert for years. They're always watching these populations looking for um, zoomorphic translation and stuff like that so uh, none of my reasons there were good it's all dumb so if we're super arch globalists mm -hmm. how have uh how can we now take over the country and implement tyranny with what we've got right now oh man see what we've got is um major shutdown no large gatherings uh we might see overwhelmed hospitals, but martial law is going to be a bit of a pickle. Uh, we can't get our gun nuts together in big groups because they'll all get sick. No. We, we somehow have to, uh, we have to sneak the virus into the White House because Trump, quote unquote, doesn't have it. I don't right. know how much I... I don't know if he would tell us if I don't think he would tell us if he did, um, but we have to we have to take him out and we have to take Pence out. Um, at the same time, though, so at the that same they can't time. appoint anybody else, right? And so they have to they have to get really sick really fast. This disease isn't very good for that. Um, but you know, yeah, if we can if we get them both at once, then then it's Nancy Pelosi, president of the universe, and mm -hmm. she obviously makes Hillary Clinton our president. Um, yes, definitely. By fiat, yes. Yes. And then continuity, COG, continuity of government, is that the right? Uh, uh, yeah, you can say that, and then we're all oh, dukes. Yes, yeah. yes right? exactly. And then they, all the they globalists become dukes and duchesses, and right. then all the sleeper cell globalists across the United States rise up, and um, they become, I don't know. Sick. <laughs> Yeah. Oh wait, we have we have the cure. We had the cure all along. Okay. So, oh, there you go. There so you then, go. Uh, we've had the cure the whole time, and it's not a vaccine because we just used the vaccine to kill everybody who survived the first thing, right? Yeah. So we make a vaccine, and we tell people, "Oh, we've got the vaccine now, so that you won't get it." And then we use that to kill off everybody that our ineffective virus failed to kill off in the first place. And then we yes. take the shreds of our economy and uh, rule the world with it. Um, can we get Satan involved in this somehow? Or, uh, or maybe, absolutely, maybe, maybe destroy the concept of family. Like, yes. since you have to self isolate, you have to stay away from your family. 
Yes, and that's, if you that's didn't what have a family, to destroy the family. Yes, yes, it'll it'll destroy everything about families. That's right. Um, if we were better at calling on Satan for assistance, do you think Satan might give us better tools to implement tyranny with? Like, are we doing it wrong? Are we bad at being Satanists? I I feel like we must been really trying for, I mean, according to Alex, quite a long time. And um, the globalists haven't been able to take over yet. So maybe Satan is ineffective. That that could be. It could be that the only thing that could ever stop us was a shouting man in Austin, Texas, who really, really believes in some kind of Jesus. Um, where should where should we put our armored redoubts? Like it sounds like New Zealand is taken kind of like already very well peopled with the armored redoubts so you're in Colorado there's a lot of open plains out east of where I am so as you go toward like Kansas there's a lot of there's a lot of space and also (laughs) oh and we have (sighs) no we have uh we have Cheyenne Mountain we have NORAD that is that that is literally an armored redoubt Space Command, yeah. Yes, Space my Command dad worked in, there. In, yeah, I was just laughing because uh, your proposal was to put our armored redoubts in flyover country, which is mm, so yeah, so perfect. You just hide it right in the middle <laughs> of uh, the that uh, neglected rural population who gets ignored. Oh my goodness! Uh, yep, yep. <laughs> middle of a cornfield. Yep. <laughs> Oh dear, uh, and then I guess we have to get rid of that. We have to get rid of ninety-five percent of all the other humans, and and then mm-hmm. that'll be gross. Yeah, that's a, that seems like a lot. That's a lot of cleanup. That's a lot of biological cleanup. Maybe that's we can rough. leave it to like the robots and the slave humans, or whatever. This, yes. or let the raptor, the raptors can come and clean it all up, or whatever. They can have oh, all yeah, the chocolate Harry- and the. Carrie can call on her raptor friends and they can come. Yeah. We'll give them a, offerings of tons of chocolate and they can eat all the humans they want to. Yeah. Human jerky. It'll be fine. Um, yeah, it'll, it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> this will all work out great. Oh yeah, it'll be, it'll be fine. I just, it seems like having billions of dollars and buying governments works better. Like yeah. the, the whole tyranny angle. Look at look at Putin. He's just now mm-hmm. gotten this uh, uh, this court to decide all by themselves that he can stay in charge till 2036 because they think it's important that that be how Russia works. That sounds like a great plan. That sounds that sounds like it's gonna go off without a hitch. Yeah, like, it's a good thing he's gonna live be... forever. Yeah, nobody will be affected negatively. Well, he's a, be fine. Yeah, well, it's a good thing that he's a patriot. Yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. By the way, Russia is currently only reporting uh, that they have like 63 cases, and I don't believe that for a hot second. Yeah, it's, it's strange, but it's kind of tough to believe what a government says when it lies all the time. Yep. That's, uh, <laughs> We, we, we truly live in the dumbest timeline. I, it's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, sad. Um, 
Another thing that kind of makes me crazy is the prevalence of this uh, alt therapies. Alex is as guilty of this as anyone in the universe with his mm-hmm. um, silver bullshit, right? But uh, there's a lot of stuff out there that people are advertising to treat viruses and boost your immune system. Can you talk a bit about that concept? I mean, I've, I've had suggested to me brick, cinnamon, colloidal, silver spritzed in the back of the throat, magnesium, <laughs> oh always God. magnesium, echinacea. Um, and there's just a lot of different supplements and remedies that are offered up to people to help them, quote, boost their immune system. Yeah, um, supplements aren't regulated by the FDA. So that's a, the, the biggest red flag right off top. Uh, you, you could be buying something that's labeled vitamin C that only has, you know, a, a milligram of vitamin C or something like that. You could be buying something that is, is just absolutely not the thing that you think that you're getting. There's no regulation on them and there's no regulation on the claims that they make. Um, so in, in research and things that I have heard and seen, um, there, there's a little, um, there's a little bit of truth to, um, taking vitamin C, but with vitamin C, it's very, um, it's very limited in when you can take it, that it will actually help. You have to, uh, you have to be taking it consistently before you get symptoms for it to make any difference at all at all. And even then, you know, it's only suspected that it really does anything. Um, I haven't read anything about echinacea. I know people say lots of good things about echinacea, but the other thing that has shown um, to be a little bit helpful is zinc. Um, That one. Yeah. I was going to ask about zinc. Yeah, go ahead. That one has, Oh no, that one has shown um, some efficacy, but again, these are absolutely not things that people should be depending on by any stretch of the imagination. They're, the boosts to your immune system, if you want to put it that way, is minimal at best. And it certainly will not ward off or kill or you know save you. It definitely will not cure a virus of any kind. Um, but yeah, zinc and uh, vitamin C are the two things that have shown uh, to have some sort of effect. Yeah, when this started coming around, that's like the closest to a vitamin regimen I will get is that I take a low dose vitamin C and zinc like every other day because the it's shown to, in some studies, reduce the length of time that you're sick with a cold if you get one. Mm-hmm. And that it, it's not it's not super helpful, but it's a little something. And it only works if you take it before you get sick. So you're going to keep doing it. Exactly. But uh, echinacea is actually, uh, weirdly enough, there are some studies that show that in dogs and cats, it is helpful with inflamed gums. That and only that. Everything else, nonsense. But I take it, uh, my mom gives it to me in like huge bottles of this stuff. And, <laughs> and so when I had sore gums... I thought, well, good for the goose, good for the gander, right? I took an echinacea, which I would otherwise have ignored or thrown out mm-hmm. for my sore gums because they hurt. And I was desperate for anything. And whether it was mm-hmm. placebo effect or that echinacea is uniquely suited to treating 
dog, cat, and Anna comes, it did okay. <laughs> <laughs> Felt better, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting that the bacteria that causes inflamed and painful gums in dogs re- seems to respond to echinacea uh, Very in an interesting, interesting. way. That's so neat. And that's so specific. Uh, but yes, cool. It really I'm is. Not, not going to use it. Not going to use it to try and treat everything that ca- causes illness in humans or yeah, anything. But it, that's yeah, exactly. delightful if you have a dog with a sore face. I mean, it's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the uh, the colloidal silver thing and the nano silver stuff like that, I, I just, I, yeah, that's, that's it's kinda, so it's frustrating. Bullshit. Yeah. Like the using it as a disinfectant, like a surface disinfectant and putting it on like wound plasters and stuff. Like I've seen, mm-hmm. I had silver bandages uh, on my uh, surgical dressing because it helps disinfect the wound site so you don't get an infection. Mm-hmm. That's super neat. I don't know why or how. Maybe it catalyzes a reaction in certain pathogens or something. I don't know. But yeah, I haven't studied it, but I have used, uh, yeah, in, in uh, wound dressing that I have done, um, I have used silver nitrate cream, but it is a very, you know, a very specific uh, medical grade and specially formulated to, you know, to be used for wound healing. Um, and it's not by itself. Silver nitrate. It's like, yeah, it's like part of a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so is, um, is there any way to tell if vitamins and supplements have what they say is on them in them or if they are good or bad? Not unless you take them to a laboratory and have them evaluated. Um, like I, I forget which entity it was that did this, uh, Buzzfeed or Vice or somebody, but I don't know if you remember, they took, but they bought a oh, bunch of homeopath- supplements. Yeah. yeah. And they, uh, they proved that like there was lead in some of them. Um, that's the kind of thing that you would have to do to determine exactly what was in your, uh, your vitamins. Um, there are boards that claim that they, uh, oversee the, uh, quality of, um, vitamins and supplements, but um, they're not regulated by the FDA either, and so you just sort of have to take their word for it. Well, it's like the um, the licensing body for naturopaths is mm-hmm. the is a self appointed board of other naturopaths who got the same sort of education that the naturopaths got, and exactly and that's actually why I named my podcast and my Twitter handle and all that it's veritopathy because I mm-hmm. declare myself to be a doctor of veritopathy and only another doctor of veritopathy could evaluate any claims I might make about <laughs> health so I That's am my perfect. own self-governing body and demand prescribing rights uh, because I should be treated the same as any other kind of doctor on the basis that I said so and I'm the only person qualified to judge whether or not that is true so That's um, exactly watch for to Alex and his quote-unquote experts sounds like that's that's exactly what it is. <laughs> um, see, I have a couple other um, real quick questions that are just health-related um, to uh, fire out of the gun. Do, do people get the flu from flu shots? 
Absolutely not. It is biologically impossible. I uh, I used to do a flu clinic uh, every Thursday during flu season when I was a community health nurse. And that was one thing that we got asked consistently. The flu virus physically, biologically cannot give you the flu. And, so, and I, I wish people would listen when I say that. My mom says that she, every time she gets a flu shot, she gets sicker than she would have if she just got the flu. And um, I don't want to like crap on my mom too much. It's just that I I don't understand. Like, what is she's sick? Some some people will get um, you know fever, lethargy, sort of body aches and and things like that for 24 hours or so after getting um, the flu shot. That's very common. Um, but the flu shot itself, it, it it cannot give you any illness, and most specifically, not the flu. So I, I don't know if there are tons of people who say that, and I don't know if that's something that is psychosomatic with them. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but vaccines cannot give you the, uh, the illness that they are developed to prevent. All right. Um, I had mentioned earlier, uh, we were talking about how the the way that COVID-19 gets you is by giving you a particularly pernicious pneumonia. Um, mm-hmm. Can uh, can you say what pneumovax protects against? Uh, so pneumococcal disease is caused by uh, the streptococcus pneumoniae bacteria or pneumococcus. So it's not a broad uh, vaccine against pneumonia. It's a it's a vaccine that is very specifically targeted toward that type of streptococcus, streptococcus pneumonia um, or pneumococcus, and the, that can cause many different kinds of diseases. Um, so pneumonia is just a general term um, that that refers to an infection or fluid in your lungs, um, but this is a specific type of pathogen. So the, the vaccine, uh, the pneumococcal vaccine, um, protects against that specific uh, pathogen. That's really interesting. I think about vaccines in terms of viruses. I don't really think about vaccines in terms of bacteria, but I suppose that's all over the place too, because there's plenty mm-hmm. of plenty of things that are bacterial that... I guess it's that with viruses, the only thing you're going to get out of it is a vaccine. And then, um, yeah. yeah. So uh, what do uh, what do you tell people in your life who are like vaguely semi-anti-vax or like, oh, I don't get the flu shot or, oh, I don't need that or, um, or I'm going to space out my, my kids' vaccines or anything like that. Do you have any golden bullets um, so I, I attended the 
can't remember whether it was 2017 or 2018, but there was a CDC, it's called the CDC Pink Book Conference, and it is the definitive conference um, on the latest uh, vaccine um, techniques and developments and, uh, you know, the, the diseases themselves and the contraindications and all of this stuff. Uh, and they have CDC doctors come and it's a three-day thing. And so I, I have lots and lots of information about um, this type of stuff. Um, as far as the spacing out vaccines, uh, research has actually shown that it is beneficial to get all of the vaccines at once because um, especially when you're talking about uh, giving them to little kids, it only puts that stress on the body all in one go. Um, so there's very little difference in, um, in spacing them out other than you only stress the body out with you know, these needle sticks one time as opposed to, you know, one here, one three months later, one six weeks later, and on and on. Um, so there's that. Um, vaccines are increasingly safe to the point where uh, adverse vaccine reactions, especially uh, serious adverse vaccine reactions, are literally one in a million. And those stories seem scary. And I, I understand that for that one in a million patient who had the horrible adverse uh, reaction and got, um, you know, some sort of, um, you know, irreversible uh, physical damage from it. I, I absolutely empathize. That's horrible. I, I wish that never happened to anybody. But with those stories that you're reading, that is the literal one in a million case where that happens. Uh, they're also safer in that um, in multi-dose vials, the stoppers on the top, the part where you stick the needle through, they used to contain latex. They don't anymore. So that allergen um, is eliminated from vaccines. You also used to not be able to get vaccines if you were allergic to eggs because eggs were used um, as, a, I believe it was a stabilizing agent. Um, so people with egg allergies can now get uh, vaccines. Um, what was the other one? The thimerosal. The thimerosal oh, that yeah. people, yeah. yeah, that people, blah, 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 whatever. Um, I, by compound large, vaguely theory that's not in there anymore, except in a couple of very specific instances exactly. that they tell you about. Yes. <laughs> um, and then um, I, I would uh, refer anybody to uh, Robert Evans' Behind the Bastards uh, series of episodes on Andrew Wakefield if they have any concerns yeah. about uh, about vaccines causing autism. That was... That, uh, he took money from places he shouldn't have taken money. He made up evidence. He skewed evidence. Uh, he manipulated evidence. Uh, he went to jail for it. He lost his license for it. It's absolutely bunk. There's nothing at all that indicates that there's any correlation between vaccines and autism. None. And, and there are so. tens of thousands of children dead from measles in Europe now. Tens uh -huh. of thousands. I, I, and do you know what he does now? He goes to South Africa and tries to convince people that AIDS is uh, made up and caused by Western interventions. Like he spends a bunch of time in South Africa now. Um, I don't have the right citation for that. I, I need better evidence. So he, I, but Andrew Wakefield makes me really that mad. Kind of monster. He is a monster. Yeah. Monster. Well, that is. Uh, 
That is a good segue to uh, what other podcasts do you like to listen to? Uh, I love Behind the Bastards, and that's where I found Knowledge Fight. Um, last podcast on the left will forever hold the number one place in my heart. I'm very sorry, Dan and Jordan. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, I. They're they're my guys. They have gotten me through a lot. Um, Worst Year Ever with Robert Evans and uh, Cody and Katie. Um, and then there's a podcast called Trace Evidence that I've grown to really like um, because I am a true crime whore. So oh, those are my man. top podcasts. Yeah. That's wonderful. I will have to look up. Um, what was the name of the last one again? Uh, uh, Trace, Trace Evidence. evidence? Trace mm-hmm. evidence. All right. Wonderful. Wonderful. And uh, who is your favorite Sonia from Sweden? The Sonia from Sweden. Obviously. Right. Obviously. Obviously. Uh, favorite novelty beverage? Uh, dark beers. I really like stouts. Currently, my favorite is a nitro uh, creme brulee stout. That is, it tastes like candy. It's delicious. Wow. That's really... Oh. I had a uh, cinnamon stout recently that I was surprised Ooh. at how much I liked. That sounds and good. By recently, I mean like six months ago. I never get <laughs> to drink... But um, now uh, the last on my little quick list there is what is your favorite knowledge fight supporting character or story? So I had to think really, really hard about this one. Um, And I came to the conclusion that the Jim Baker episodes are always really entertaining. Um, I grew up in a a very Christian conservative um, bubble. I went to Christian school from the time I was in sixth grade until I graduated. And my family was pretty conservative Christian. Um, But thank God that they are they do not have that leaning anymore. They don't have that mindset. and uh, so I was also uh, very adjacent to the the realm of the prosperity gospel and the televangelists and and all of those charlatans. So I I really identify a lot with both Dan and Jordan um, in their perspective of having grown up uh, in the church or in a very conservative um, setting. And then so I I end up yelling about the the blasphemy and the heresy basically the same way that they do and so those episodes are always really fun for me wonderful um i i like um i do a thing where when i hear something and i want to remember that i have a thought about it but i don't want to interrupt i cross my fingers to hold the thought and then i can keep it for days if i need to (laughs) so i'm sitting here hanging on to this thought that I had uh, to keep track of while you were talking. Um, And it was that that is a testament to Dan's editing and the work that he does, I think, because I'm willing to bet Mm -hmm. that Jim Baker is obnoxious and boring as hell. And that, Mm -hmm. that he gives us the, the frothy fuzzy cream at the very tippy top of all the goodness. And uh, that, that we can have a good laugh. Um, when the uh, the rest of it just seems like it would be appalling. I've tried listening to oh, some God, yeah. Project Camelot. I did uh, the the second version of Data Kerfuffle that I did was on the mm-hmm. Anunnaki of Nibiru, um, which is awesome. uh, went through a interview that Carrie Cassidy did with a real crazy guy, and her interview with him is like ninety minutes long. 
and I had to listen Ooh. to it all the way through twice to try and grab sections. And it's bad. That sounds painful. It's that sounds so <laughs> painful. So I've been really stalling out on this episode that I promised uh, Sonia from Sweden that I was going to do about Pleiadians while she was having brain surgery. And oh. I haven't finished yet. And she's been better for months. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, Carrie, Carrie can be, she talks so slowly, she can be difficult to listen to just on the, just on the snippets that Dan yeah. picks out of the, out of her episodes. Well, the thing that you have to understand is that if you don't yeah. stop making the sound with your mouth between thoughts, it's harder to interrupt you and stuff. Yep. Oh, I could. Ugh. But, you know, I love I love the curated goodness that we get. Yes, exactly. Really I do too. Bad stuff. I don't know how the people who listen to Alex Jones direct from the hose manage um, up and be like, oh, I heard this thing on Alex's show. And I'm like, we have a whole guy for that. What are you doing? Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, uh, we have, uh, we've been at it for, oh, it's about an hour and a half. That's not too bad, right? So um, no, I wanted to thank bad. you for, for taking the time to, to talk to me today. And uh, your expertise is of real value. Do you have any, like, pluggables to plug or advice or final parting thoughts? Uh, my my final parting thoughts have to do with just the the panic buying um, that I've seen going on. Um, I've seen pictures of it and everything. Um, at, at the top of the list, um, don't hoard toilet toilet paper. Like this is a respiratory virus, <laughs> and nobody's going to go through 300 rolls of toilet paper in a two week quarantine. Um, and, uh, the other, the other really big thing that, uh, I just really want to put out there is to just be kind to people as we're all going through this together. Um, just be really mindful of the people who have no choice, but to go to work, whether that be, um, because they work at a supermarket or, uh, you know, work in a hospital or take care of, you know, someone sick in their home, um, it's, it's very scary, especially for people who, um, who depend on tips to live, you know, servers who depend on um, their place of work staying open in order for them to even be able to pay their rent and buy their food. And um, it, that's, that's the thing that I really hope people keep in mind is to just be kind through all of this. We're, you know, we we're all humans. We're all doing our best to get through this. Um, yeah, just be kind. That's really good advice. I appreciate that a lot. I mean, we are all here in this end stage capitalist hellscape together. And, exactly. and this isn't anybody's fault. I mean, we can be mad about how it's being treated and we can say these measures are good. These measures are bad. That's not helping. But at the end of the day, like even the Trump supporter across the parking lot is just some person who wants what they think is best. And maybe they're wrong, but that doesn't mean they need to get sick and or, you know, be mistreated. It's it sucks for everybody. Exactly. So, exactly. I appreciate that a lot. Um, uh, 
Well, you guys can you can find me online at Veritopathy, V-E-R-I-T-O-Pathy. And uh, you can like and subscribe. Or I don't know how any of that works. I have a Patreon, but who cares? I have a WordPress and like, I guess, a Redbubble. I might have a Redbubble. I don't know. I'm on Twitter. Um, so this uh, this entire production has been a shameless, unauthorized, ancillary to knowledge fight, which is the Extremely Good podcast which you can find in all of your podcast applications. And they have a much more important Patreon and they do real honest work. So you pay more attention to them if anybody is listening to this and uh, has the urge to give somebody money. So I have, uh, I have been Anna McDermott. So uh, thank you for listening to Data Kerkuffle. And thank you, Kristen, for joining us. And thank uh, you again for having me. Yep. So stay safe out there and stay well and busy and uh, don't be a slut. Yep. All right. Have a good night. Thank you too. Bye.